you're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next, do you know what, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to find out how long this is, and then I'm going to put a little edit in here, which says exactly how many minutes we've done, (laughs) and for once, we'll have an accurate intro, okay? (laughs) Minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. You know I'm going to forget to do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that intro is just going to be all messed up. But it's the way you said minutes, and then at the end you go, 127! So it would be completely wrong. It'll sound strange and distorted. <clears throat> oh my God, I hope we don't do 127. 127! Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Not on the episode we're doing. Lee? Yes. Would I be right in saying... No. That you have been moonlighting. I might have done. <laughs> well, like Sybil Shepherd. <clears throat> what do you mean? No. Mm. Not with that sax. I was about to correct you and say more like Bruce Willis, and then I looked at Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure. Balding. Do you know what? My brothers used to sing under the boardwalk at me when I was losing my hair. That's how close you are with that description. Bruce Willis. <laughs> it was, there was another little, little guy wasn't there who was um, dating the secretary. What, in Moonlighting? In the la- yeah, later series of mm. Moonlighting. It's more like you, Simon. See, yeah, when I say Moonlighting, I'm thinking more of Jeremy Irons. Okay, that reference has gone over the top. Oh, yeah, just absolutely. About. Yeah. In the early 1980s, just after Thatcher came to power, mm. there was a film about Polish workers in Britain called Moonlighting, and Jeremy Irons played, and I think it was like a, it was like a Alfie Same Pet type of scenario, but it was a political film, and Jeremy Irons played the sort of ringleader of these Polish workers, <laughs> and it was like a, that was back in the early 80s when there were a lot of films that were a backlash against Thatcher, weren't there? <clears throat> Quite a few, weren't there? Can't think why. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I think of when I We're in for a new se- season, aren't we? For a new season of Politically Aware. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this microphone's picking up everything, Simon. I, yeah, just so people know why I'm rubbing my hands together. <laughs> Stop rubbing your hands together. <laughs> he rubs his blinking flanks. I've stopped slapping my flanks now. Yeah, these noises sound horrible when you've got buds in your ears. You should wait until he eats. Did- <laughs> Yeah, well, that's one thing I'm never going to record for the podcast. It's dreadful. What were you going to say? You were rubbing your hands together for a reason. I was saying that in this new political climate, are we going to get a, a sudden... Do we predict uh, we need an it. influx of artistic... Yeah, I mean, I think we need, it. we need more punk. There needs to be real punk back. Come on. <clears throat> Where are the real punk bands gone? Need None new... of this American idiot rubbish. I don't think you will get it. You don't. Two reasons. One, uh, okay, one is not really a reason, but there's been a lot. In London, there were anti-Tory riots. Mm. Do these people not realise 
It's a democracy. We voted this party in. Yeah, well, you don't want riots, do you? That just hurts. You don't have riots against the party that's just been voted in by the majority of the population. That's crazy. It's not technically true, though, is it? Well, uh, the the majority in terms of in if as, you were to as far as the system's concerned, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's yeah. funny, isn't it? Because as much so, as I hate it, we voted them in. Yeah, you can't turn around and then say, "Oh, but I don't like it." I mean, you can turn around and say you don't like it if after six months, <clears> nine <throat> months, fifteen months, all of a sudden their policies are starting to get ridiculous. You know, mm. like Thatcher. But until the policies start to get ridiculous, you can't say... Because for the last five years, they've been in with the Lib Dems, right? And as much as we might not like what they've been doing, i got to say, as a government, they're just wet. Hmm. They don't... Thatcher, she had ideas. Much as I hated Thatcher, she had ideas. And she went for the jugular, and she made it happen. And that puts her up with some of the great politicians of the last... Two centuries. Hitler. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? In terms of, regardless of what your ideology is, mm. she is one of the great politicians of the last two centuries because she had ideas. She came to power and she put those ideas into action. Whether you agree with them or not, and of course you disagree with them, she's a great politician. David Cameron, on the other hand, he's just a... A wet fart on the face of Britain, really, Such isn't it? Big baby. Yeah. So we've probably we've probably got five year of uh, five years of what they call austerity, which is basically five years of doing your shoelaces up and making your top buttons done up and your ties up tight to the top of your shirt. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's it's the government of the wet fart. <laughs> Well, there's a punk song that you need to write. Yeah. Speaking of which, though, here's an email. <laughs> Dear JRK, Vice President Brett, and JR Special Intern in the Stained Black Dress, Monica Lee Ralston. <laughs> oh, dear. Special mention to Mark, the scandal-prone minister asked to leave the Blue Box cabinet for doing nothing wrong while having a moment of madness ramming his cock on Exmoor. I've just been... Ca- yeah. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I think no, it's okay. I think it's just a play on words, given oh. his surname. Got it. Right. Doesn't mean anything necessarily rude. No, if you were to not. read anything rude into it, that would just be your own dirty mind doing all <laughs> the work. Be pushing his chicken. <laughs> that sounds worse. As opposed to rhyming his cock. Yeah. You didn't want to say the word cock, did you? Well, I didn't repeat it. <clears throat> Anyway, the email continues thus. I've just been catching up on the last two podcasts as my left-wing soul was too depressed to listen to anything last weekend and I'm not sure I can cope with you all discussing politics. It's all still pretty raw. For what it's worth, politics has always been about figureheads, good or bad, going back to Alexander the Great, mm. Caesar, Socrates and Christ, through Lincoln, Lloyd George, Castro and Mandela, right up to Thatch, Blair, Obama, Bartlett, Palpatine, Skywalker, Rassilon, Goth <laughs> and Doctor. <laughs> the miserable bit now is how they're all dull middle management former special advisor drones with the personality of a stale cheese roll. I'm talking mild cheddar or American burger cheese with bugger all flavour. Actually, I should probably have 
staved off from what I was just saying just now because <laughs> I've pretty much spoiled his email, really, haven't I? You could always edit it round the other way. <clears throat> that's why people think they're like. That's why people think they like politicians who pretend that they actually have a personality, like Boris and Farage, and then get into the polling booth and vote for the blandest option who promises to wax their balls with the softest hands while poking their more vulnerable neighbours in the eye with those tiny pencils the Electoral Commission nicked from Argos. <laughs> We're all going to die. There is no law. Farewell, Red Brick Road. Beam me up, Jesus. And that's from Citizen David. Oh, that's a cracking email, David. Carrington. More, yeah. please, David. Well, okay, let's have... <laughs> Dear Blue Box stroke Ed Miliband team. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I've just finished listening to your Tooth and Claw podcast. Like many of the episodes you're revisiting, it's one I haven't seen since the initial broadcast, and your reviews have been encouraging me to go back and rediscover them for myself. During the episode, you raised the topic of the Tenth Doctor's character, and I wanted to add to the conversation. For me, the problem is not so much that he becomes arrogant and smug over time, but that there's no payoff to his character to this character arc. Across his three years, we see the Doctor, if I can put it this way, flirting with the dark side. He's bending the rules, handing out justice, and being arrogant about it. The steps in this seem very carefully planned. The vengeance stuff in human nature. In Silence in the Library, there's the moment he opens the TARDIS door with a click of his fingers. Donna lectures him about turning Martha into a soldier, a topic that's repeated in Journey's End. This all builds to the moment in Waters of Mars when he outright breaks the laws of time, resulting in the suicide of a character. Uneasiness at the suicide aside, I thought this was all a very interesting development and going to lead to a wonderful denouement and moment of redemption for the Doctor. Something like the beautiful moment in Planet of the Spiders when the Doctor realises the damage his arrogance has caused mm. and that he must face his fears to make amends. But there was nothing. It wasn't even mentioned again. No payoff at all for the build-up and it was immaterial to his regeneration. So we're left with the Doctor just becoming smug and arrogant. I guess because he was smug and arrogant? Personally, I think this is the biggest missed trick in the RTD era. I look forward to hearing more from you. And you will. Regards, David Kitchen, your friendly neighbourhood Tory. <laughs> Assuming your neighbourhood is Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a really so, interesting thing, but I thought the Waters of Mars, that, that was the end of that. Because in the next couple of episodes, he wasn't as Time Lord Victorious Arrogant, was he? That was kind of the point, wasn't it? <clears throat> they had to move on after that bit. Mm. Um, no, because well, he knew he was going to die, didn't he? No, he, he didn't. was quite he self-obsessed, kind of went, off, went off the rails, didn't he? That was what happened. Yeah, he was self-obsessed. He was a bit paranoid, went off the rails. Mm. It was time for him to go, really, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was time for him to go. Well, maybe maybe RCD thought the cycle came, came to an end with um, sacrificing himself for Wilf. Oh, right, yeah. Nah, because... Well, yeah, well, I know, I know well, yeah. on screen it doesn't quite pay off like that, but certainly on the written page you could... Yeah. You could do that. You could say, well, what's the most honourable thing I can do? And that's to give himself to save someone else. And that's the, that ties in with the whole Four Knocks thing. Mm. But then he was still kind of completely confused when the Time Lords turned up. He didn't know what to do. It took the Master to step in, didn't it? Mm -hmm. In the end. Mm -hmm. So he still wasn't quite So, yeah, old. David's right. It's a misstep. Have you either of you read The Writer's Tale? 
Either the yeah, shorter no. one or the longer no, one. I've got it sitting there and I've picked <clears> at it. And I mean, people writing in about RTD, a lot of them have read the writer's tale. And mm. <clears throat> um, it's blatantly obvious from the writer's tale that Russell T. Davis isn't paying things off because he's just an absolute whirlwind of ideas. Yeah. But he's, he's like a... And see, he can he can manage to pull things around on the other programmes he does. But with Doctor Who, it's like he's this child in a toy box and he's all, oh, here's something really exciting I can do and here's something else really exciting I do. And he spends so much time thinking about the exciting thing he can do that he kind of forgets to think about what it is that he's doing with it. Do you know what this think, relates to? I think I was going to say today. today's viewing is related to what you just said there. Mm. Yes, because today we're doing gridlock, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, what that relates to is, I was talking to Lee about this the other day, I'm starting to get back into doing my music and I use a program which where I've got I've got a palette of so many different sounds that I can spend I could spend days just looking for the right sound to use rather than, and I'm literally going to have to limit myself to a, a limited palette of sounds and work from that because I do believe that the, you know, sometimes it's... it's the less, spirit of invention is, is yeah, less is more, and you invent more when you've got a limited palette. Yes. So but what you're saying is Russell T Davis has has got this palette of unlimited possibility, unlimited possibility, and therefore it doesn't get honed down to. So rather than especially when you get to the second and third series, when you realise he's he's made a hit, mm. and now he can go literally anywhere with it. Mm. And that's the thing: if you've got an unlimited toy box. And you're looking at what the next toy is before you finish with this toy. You don't finish playing with this toy before you start playing with the next one. And that's... It's, it's kind of ironic when you consider a lot of the criticism of Moffat is that they feel that things aren't unresolved. I mean, you go back to RTD and there's, there's, a, mm-hmm. there's a lack of structure. There's quite a lot of time of the Doctor hate. Mm. Um, on, I hadn't realised how many people disliked that, and I loved it. Oh yeah, I think it might be worth revisiting <laughs> that one day. But um, well, we might do in, that in as a Christmas of, special in the no, same way we've know, been doing these. Yeah, Who in, knows? In the light of what people are saying in reactions to what's what's going on, uh, there's some really good arguments why people don't like it. But um, but they're all rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but bless you, Lee, for not realising that the internet's out there and other people do have opinions on these things and what those opinions are. <laughs> Can I just say, just quickly going back to uh, Mr. Kitchen, is that just because we showed a leaning towards not wanting the Tories in power doesn't mean that we automatically vote Labour, surely. I love Churchill, so it's great. Should we move on? Yeah. <laughs> we did all vote Labour though, didn't we? I'm not going to tell you what, I think. I'm not tell anyone, but we were in a marginal seat, I'll also. Who was? We are. Well, here. Hmm. Well, Lee isn't, but we are. No, I'm not. I was, oh, you're in the Tory seat, aren't you? I had to, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> mm. It is. I'm not saying, you know, the whole of the world and the government in I, Paris I like to imagine, but the person we have got, I just don't like the person that's in it. <laughs> I like to imagine, well, I don't like to imagine, but I imagine Exeter being like a little red dinghy in a sea of blue. It is now. Uh, it is, absolutely. Well, Ben Bradshaw multiplied his... His um, margin by about three times, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben Bradshaw shouldn't be running for deputy leadership. He should be running for leader. That's what I thought. Leader needs to be somebody. Great. Leader needs to be somebody with personality and integrity. And Ben Bradshaw mm. is 
absolutely brimming with both. Yeah, he's look, got he's, more integrity than any other politician. If you look I've at his past, seen. you can't dig anything up from him, really. I don't think the only thing I suppose that goes because there's <clears throat> we get into politics again. Yeah, well, we... <laughs> <laughs> he's gay, right? Yeah, and obviously in this day and age. Being gay is no longer a thing in this country. Wonderful. But you can bet your ass that if you had somebody running for if you had somebody running for Prime Minister who was gay, the Daily Mail would make it a thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just like they had said doctored you who when Ross D. Davis took over and look how wonderful that all became and accepted. Yeah, but no no no. I'm talking about organizations like the Daily Mail and the Sun. You look and, at the and Sun the female Prime Minister. No, but you look at Lee. Just listen to the sentence and tell me. I know. I'm living in an idealistic world. You look at the sun <laughs> and you tell me that although they wouldn't say we don't like him because he's gay, they wouldn't say vote for the other guy because he's gay. You know. Mm, be interesting, though, wouldn't it? A newspaper, an organisation like Rupert Murdoch's organisation, is not going to get behind the gay guy. Well, so. I hope one day that's wrong. Yeah, I do. Hence I think the decision to go for deputy. <clears throat> Yeah. Perhaps. Mm. Also, I don't think Ben Bradshaw wants to be the leader of the country. No. I think he sees himself more as somebody who... I think he sees himself perhaps as more of a facilitator than a leader, which I think is wrong because I think he has all the qualities to do it. Mm. And, I, you know, he's so much better a candidate than all the people who've actually put themselves forward. It's just ridiculous, really. We could end up... That's the sound of people fast forward in this bit. Yeah. <laughs> but we're gonna, if we're not, kitchen. If we're not careful, we're going to end up with another bloody Ed Miliband, and we're going to end up with another bloody five years of the Tories. Anyway, gridlock. Right, before we do gridlock, one more email. We've got two more emails. I'll do one and save the other one for the end, because it's from you-know-who. Okay, fair enough. But this one would be from Rob Irwin in Australia. He says, you can do the accent, are you? Of course you are. Okay, I'll leave it to it. He says, Hi guys, whenever a series of New Who is on, it seems that pundits all over the world try and divide what's happening with it via the ratings. Overnight, consolidated, and there are many opinions out there. I'm not going to carry on. <laughs> I doubt it will be any different when Series 9 returns, and no doubt there will have to be renewed explanations why, in, increasing, in an increasingly fractured viewing landscape, the ratings of today can't be compared to the ratings of yesteryear. Mm. But, here's a question for you all. During the last series in particular, it was made clear many times that Doctor Who wasn't losing viewers, and that, from a certain way of looking at it, the ratings were as good as they always were. I don't want to debate that. But I am interested how you think this ties into the general theory, and one I've heard JR mention in the past, that each year brings a new crop of fans to the series. For example, if the show is essentially marking time in the ratings, and as good as it ever was, presumably we are getting a new crop of fans each year, but losing some elsewhere. My thought is that kids who watch from, say, aged 7 to 13, might start to drop off at that point because they feel it's a show of their younger years, they get replaced by new fans, but the ratings stay the same. Look forward to your thoughts, Rob Irwin. I agree um, with that. 
Yeah, I don't think we actually need to answer that at all because he's pretty much answered it himself yeah, in the last paragraph. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's perfectly logical to think that. That's because, exactly what happens. Yeah, I mean, I work in a library, so I see the same with books. You get to that certain stage with teenagers where they just drop off. They've, yeah. got, they've got homework to do. They're, they're heading towards their new careers. They're, they've <clears> got <throat> love, life, and, you know... And it's not the even chemicals in their body are kicking off. They're not really interested in anything. And the same thing happens seven to thirteen. The same <clears> thing <throat> happens sixteen to twenty-four. Yeah. Right? They'll somebody come back. they'll come back. No, but what I'm saying again is somebody who gets into Doctor Who at the age of sixteen because people will and are getting into Doctor Who as teenagers will watch it while they're in their teen years and then job, mortgage, relationship, baby, and the next thing you know they're not watching as much television anymore. And they just probably drop off again from Doctor Who. And they might very well come back to it. But you know what those people are doing? Is they're catching up with Doctor Who on watch. Hmm. And uh, the half a million people who are watching <clears throat> Doctor Who on watch, that will be made up, say, I don't know what the figures would be, but let's say, for example, if half a million people are watching Doctor Who on watch, half of those will be people who've seen it five years ago when it was on. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I remember this being good. Mm. And the other half of people are saying, oh, yeah, I used to watch Doctor Who when Christopher Eccleston was in it. And then I sort of dropped off when David Tennant was in it. So let's watch those David Tennant stories and find out what I missed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Here's, here's another theory as well, is that um, you get the people who watch an era of Doctor Who, like the Eccleston era, and <clears throat> Tennant comes in, they decide they don't like it anymore, stop watching. Then a few <clears throat> years later... They catch Tennant in his own right without having that pre... Yeah. That, uh, whatever you call yeah. it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, and, and it becomes a fresh show to them. And then they start watching Tennant again and then get back into it. Yeah. And then there are people who will... I had a friend at work who watched Tennant, loved Tennant, and then when Matt Smith was cast, he refused to watch it. Didn't even watch The Eleventh Hour. Just refused to watch it with Matt Smith. And he missed the entire Matt Smith era. And then when Peter Capaldi was cast, he came back. Wow. Mm. You've been so much good stuff, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like... And a know, whole pile of pants as well. But and That was a completely arbitrary decision based entirely upon, mm. you know, the physical appearance of the actor who was but cast. But that, that's the same for... That, that's the kind of decision you make when you're a kid. You know, there's one kid that I know, same age as my son, uh, who was watching Doctor Who. He was... Tennant was his... his his doctor he used to dress like him you know did all learn all the words in the playground did all the actions whatever matt smith came along and he kind of went oh it's not as good as tennant because david tennant was his doctor it's yeah, like yeah, when yeah. you have tom baker and then peter davison came along it's like mm, you know it's all right yeah yeah <laughs> so he kind of dropped off but now he's come back and he loves capaldi which is like, this is great you know 16 year old loves capaldi um and he's an absolute doctor who he's going back looking at the classic years now and he's going back to Matt Smith and be watching him again. So that you know, you do get these dips and 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 you know, picks and troughs. And the other thing as well is when the kids get to twelve or thirteen or whatever and grow out of Doctor Who and start watching know, pop music videos on YouTube instead pop. or whatever, then you lose the parents as well. And yes. sometimes you lose the parents earlier because the parents will watch it with the kids till they're like eight or nine or whatever. And then the parents will be going off and making dinner or something. And the kids will be watching it on their own for a couple mm. of years. And then when the kids drop off, you've lost the entire family. But then again, those people may come back to it later, maybe watching it on watch, maybe yeah. picking it up on iPlayer, this kind of stuff. Or you have the DVDs and they just get rewatched over and over again so you don't get any 
you know, no. notches on the um, plays. But uh, the fact is, something like Doctor Who, which is, it's not like, say, for instance, Silent Witness. Mm. Silent mm. Witness will catch an audience, and that audience will grow for a while as the program, as word of mouth, season upon season means that more people come to it to take a look at this program that other people, their friends are saying, this is really good. And so for three or four years, the audience grows and then it reaches a peak and then it just slightly diminishes as some people then say, right, I've seen enough of this now, but it will stay more or less mm. at a level mm. across several years because it's picking up an already adult audience who already know their tastes. Mm. Doctor Who's not aimed at an audience who already know their tastes. Doctor Who is a facilitator for those tastes. The Deputy so, Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but the, the point I'm making here is, so Doctor Who's audience is constantly in flux. And the fact that it can maintain an audience. And what's happening at the moment is it's gone down from an average of 8 million viewers on TV to 7 million on TV and 2 million on the internet. Which means actually it's probably increased its audience. And even though there's 2 million on the internet, you can't count all of those because some people will be ones that have watched it twice or whatever. Mm. So it's hard to say exactly what's happening. But it looks like the audience has more or less stayed around the 8 million mark. And so to keep an audience at a level of 8 million people across 10 years of television, when you are a programme whose audience is constantly in flux, is a staggering achievement. The, and it's no wonder the BBC are so happy with it and are happy to say, let's keep it going for another five years. Especially on the budget they've got. Well, let's not let's not forget as well. The other fascinating, I find it fascinating, is that obviously the new Who as opposed to classic Who, <clears throat> classic Who to a lesser extent because it was all down to distribution. But now with the internet and the fact that people talk to each other across different countries, you've got all these little seeds being planted in all the different countries around the world, and they're building around each other. Exactly. So you've got these little. But if you were to look at a map of the world, you and kind of sped the camera up, you'd see these little explosions happening in different countries where it slowly spreads out, where people start talking mm. to each other. Have you watched this? India. And then you've the got a whole cycle happening again where people see Eccleston for the first yes. time. Yeah, or they yeah. or they see a Capaldi and then they go back. So the whole thing starts over again, but on a much bigger scale. I mean, the World Tour was supposed to be kind of that as well, wasn't it? it yeah. Was kicking it off again and, and, you know, literally taking the Doctor and the the team around the well, world. Well, the world tour was consolidating what Day of the Doctor had done, but yeah, between exactly. the pair of them, that yeah, was yeah. essentially. Mm. And don't forget as well, Doctor Who is a programme that brings people to the BBC. Yeah. Whereas with something like, to stay with the example that I was using, Silent Witness. Silent Witness, you'll sell that abroad to people who are already interested in that kind of programme. And Silent Witness won't bring anybody to the BBC. You know, you know, there are still people who will just watch a particular channel or a couple of particular channels and don't tend to channel hop and don't tend to look for things elsewhere. But if word of mouth and viral word of mouth on the internet is such that they'll actually tune into a station they wouldn't normally go to for a particular programme, and Doctor Who and Sherlock are the programmes that bring that kind of buzz, and I'm not talking about just in Britain, but selling those programmes abroad, mm. then they'll say, well, hang on, I didn't realise the BBC was this good. What else have the BBC got? 
And when you're selling those programmes abroad, yeah. it's the same thing. You sell Doctor Who and Sherlock to China, and China are going to say, hang on, these are really good programmes. What else have you got? So something like Doctor Who is not just bringing in viewers for the BBC, but it's also, you know, for that programme. It's not just bringing in viewers for that programme. It's also bringing in viewers for other programmes mm. and working as a shop window for the BBC across the world. Totally. Mm. I've, I've, um, <clears throat> I've experienced this firsthand recently because um, obviously been into my electronic music and, and things like that, uh, certainly through Facebook, I'm a member of groups where everyone's talking about that sort of thing. And every now and again, I'll mention something to do with Doctor Who because, let's face it, it's part of my life now. Um, and that has had a little ripple effect. All of a sudden, people are saying, oh, you're into Doctor Who? I love Doctor Who and all this sort of thing. Yeah. So it's ended up, the most recent thing is I ended up, you know, getting hold of a box set, a particular box set that a lady in Germany was having trouble getting hold of and got it, got hold of it for her and sent it out to her. Yeah. You know, and it's... It's just incredible, and that comes from the fact that we both like the same sort of music, but then we start yeah. talking about it, so it's but fascinating. When you, when you physically go abroad, like when I went to Vancouver... Who physically goes anywhere these days with the internet, <laughs> <laughs> It's like a Robert Shetty novel. No, uh, you know, I just sit in the back garden in the sun lounger <laughs> with the sun lamp over me and get the laptop out and look at nice pictures of Thailand. That's my summer holiday. I bet you do. Picking a bride. <laughs> hey! No, as I was saying, my sensible. <laughs> we I know had, you're married. I I'm know. Not, I know. We no. had at work this morning. We had a work video, and halfway through the work video, there was an interview with a guy. I'm not going to say his full name because, but there was an interview with a guy whose surname was Shakeshaft, which was followed by a report on what people were raising for the Stroke Association. Oh. You've had too much Harry Cheers on your mind. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go to places around the world, I'd like to be interested to see what our you know our global listenership is anyway. But say the, the chap in Melbourne that I I've been to Melbourne, right? And, if you know and anybody Vancouver. listening to this, if you know what our global listenership is, please write <laughs> yeah. in and tell us. Tell us Anyone's counted. Tell us where you are. But I didn't see anything at all. Dot who based at all? Where? Nothing. Vancouver, Melbourne. Two places. I went to all the shops. Didn't see anything at all, apart from the odd DVD. And that was it, really. Um, well, you know, one third of Radio yeah. Free Scarrows in Vancouver. Well, I'd like to know where they get their stuff from. Is it like a you know specialist shop, or is Doctor Who that well known in in <coughs> Canada that it is out on the, on the street? Are there Doctor Who adventure magazines? Are there this, that, and the other being sold out in the streets? In the streets, but you know, in the shops. High Street. High Street. Thank you. But. Um, I, I don't think anything. it's in I High felt, Street. It felt quite devoid of who when I was out there for those for those weeks. It was almost like it didn't exist. It was almost like weird. The nineties. Yeah, I kept asking people. <laughs> it was like the nineties. I kept asking them, "What's that? You know, what's that then?" Um, well, <laughs> I have to explain it to them. And it sounds like a kid show. It is kind of. <laughs> oh, shut up now. Well, well it's the thing to talk to people about Firefly is it? Yeah. Have you ever heard of Firefly? No. Well, that's that's what it basically felt like. Yeah, Doctor Who a, a niche, in like. places like Canada and Australia. I thought were, were big news. No shows on, um, shows on subscription channels. So oh, it would okay. be like the equivalent of a big hit on Sky One. Yeah. So the terrestrial well, there aren't any anymore, are there? But someone like no, ABC they're... wouldn't buy <clears throat> BBC stuff in anymore. Like they well, no, because BBC America are doing it themselves, but you only get BBC America through a subscription yeah. service. So just like you wouldn't have 
I don't know, these days, do you get Sky 1 through view, Freeview? You don't, do you? Or do uh, you? Sky 1, no. I didn't no, know. No, you get it through cable. Right, through so cable, yeah. like you wouldn't get Sky 1 through Freeview, you can't watch Doctor Who for free in right. these places. Pay. Yeah. Netflix. Fair enough, isn't it? Well, no, not Netflix, but you pay a subscription, like you pay for Sky TV or Virgin TV. So, you know, depending what platform you get, you watch Doctor Who. So, I suppose Doctor Who would be a hit in the same way as, try and think, something like An Idiot Abroad was a hit for Sky. Mm. You know what An Idiot, mm. idiot Abroad is, mm. right? Mm. But I would assume that... <laughs> Spin to Vancouver. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that. Hey, just very quickly though, The Idiot Abroad, it's Mr. Carl Pilkington, is it not? And Mr. Carl Pilkerton has a book in oh, yeah. a particular charts, the Amazon charts, and I, I believe it's the TV Guides. TV Guides charts, and it's number two in the charts, because at number one was a particular book that was released this week that has an association with the three people sitting at this table. Yeah, it does. The Carl Pilkington one is Kindle, though, so the Carl Pilkington one has been... Back and forth at the number one spot with this other particular book you're talking about. There is a hard copy in that top five of Carl Pilkington's as well. And it's cheaper. <clears throat> yeah, but it's in the top five. It's not the one that's been at number one. The one that's been at number one is the Kindle one. Um, so the book that's been the number one print edition for the last week and a half or whatever is John Davis's Blake's Heaven. <laughs> well, <laughs> I say John Davis's, but it is John Davis's. But you were uh, involved as well because watching books has something to do with you, isn't it? Yeah, watching books is my publishing imprint, which is well, no, there's no applause necessary oh, for that. Up. I don't publish them. I just it's one of these things you can use a service to publish books, okay. and I just I I was gonna just use it to. The You and Who books that I did mm. had fallen out of print, right? And so I thought, and they weren't going to be coming back into print. I mean, it looked like they might do for a while, but they weren't going to be coming back into print. Mm. So I just said, right, I don't want these books to be out of print because I think they're too good. Mm. And also, I had ideas that I wanted to do for more You and Who books including the one that I'm doing at the moment, which is You and Who Else. That's the one I really wanted to do, which is, um, instead of essays about Doctor Who, it's essays about the whole of British telefantasy. And that one will be coming out, hopefully in the autumn, but by early 2016 at the latest. Oh, it's a cracking book. It really <laughs> is astonishing. But the idea was just to get the You and Who books back in print. So I was just going to use this service to print them. Hmm. So that you knew they'd be available at print on demand. And then I thought, well, hang on. The three You and Who books that we've had so far, one of them has got, two of them have got my name on the spine. And one of them's got Christopher Bryan on the spine. Because on the second You and Who book, it got so huge, it, we had to split it. And I asked Christopher if he'd come and take care of one half while I took care of the other half. So we split the workload, and so he did one book and I did the other book. Mm. And then I thought, well, hang on. If you go to the listings on the internet and look up, whatever way you look it up, because I don't know, there, there seems to be some kind of glitch in the way these programs work. But if you look up you and who on, for example, the service that starts with an A, 
you might not necessarily get them all. So I thought the best thing to do instead would be to start a website which was just specifically dealt with those books. And I thought you've got to call it something. And then I thought, well, invent an imprint and put the make a logo and put the logo on the spine. So basically all I've done is done a little free website and you know, devised a logo and put the logo on the spine of the books and just got them back out there. So those three books are almost exactly the same as they were originally. One's got an extra half a series worth of essays to take it up to the 50th anniversary. Because the second Ewan Who book was supposed to tie in with the 50th, but because it came out at the start of the 50th That's year, true, yeah. it's missing all that 50th year's content. So I decided to update it to the end of that 50th year. So you need to buy it again then, right? <laughs> it's not that. I did. Do you, do you know? Can the, you just send me that bit? Is that right? That little bit. The, the numbers of books you sell like this are so low; it makes no difference. Nobody's bought it because they needed to complete their set with the extra I essays. I think you're probably they have. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to be doing <laughs> the same. Yeah. Well, in that case, buy the combined edition. Mm. All right. Because their first book's got two replacement essays in for two that were withdrawn. Oh, okay, right. So if you don't buy. If you buy, just buy Volume 2 again, you'll miss out on the two new essays in Volume 1. So just buy the combined edition. Okay. Which that. saves you a lot of money. There you are. Sold. Mm. Gridlock. Oh, fun. <laughs> oh, well. Well, we haven't explained Blake's Heaven. Oh, Blake's Heaven is just... What a cracking book this is. Well, it had nothing to do with me. Uh, well, you, you're in it, though. Um, John asked me to do the afterword because... I'll tell you the story of Blake's Heaven because it literally didn't have anything to do with me. It, Matt at Milk, who published the You and Who books, big Blake Seven fan, right? So he asked John to do, well, he, Matt originally said, well, I kind of like what we're doing with the You and Who here. Why don't we do a Blake Seven one? And then he asked John to do it because he knew John was up and coming in the organisation, inverted commas, because John was going to work with me on a You and Who book that'll be probably kicking off later this year or next year. So he knew John was interested, so he asked John to do the Blake 7 book, and then they kind of said to me as an afterthought, oh, is it okay if we do a Blake 7 book sort of thing? And I sort of said, well, yeah, okay, if you want to. And because I don't know Blake 7 enough, well enough to have written an essay for it myself. I wasn't going to have any involvement with it at all. And then Matt decided that he wasn't going to do these charity things anymore anyway, because Milk has kind of gone off in a different direction anyway. Yeah, yeah. And these things are a bit nasty to organise, really. So then we were left without a publisher, which is why the original Ewan Who's have fallen out of print. But more importantly, John was left without a publisher. So he and Nicholas, who was doing all the design work and all yeah. the... <clears throat> formatting for yeah, him good man. were just going to put it out themselves on Lulu and just before they did I said well hang on you know don't you want to stick it out with the rest of the you, who book, you and Who books on watching books so like literally at the 11th hour Blake's Heaven came back to me as it were I think it's found it's natural home I think it well happened. yeah oh, but, but it is a you and, yeah. it is a yeah, you and Who absolutely. book mm. But it's just that it's a you and who book that started without me. <laughs> and it, it was never my idea to do a Blake Seven one. I mean, if 
if t- enough time had gone on and we thought about what other ideas we could do, then chances are we may well have got around to a Blake 7 one. Mm. But there's not many series you can do something like that for. And Blake 7 is perhaps the only other one apart from Doctor Who. Hyperdrive? <laughs> Stop. Story by episode by episode <laughs> essays <laughs> for any other series. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Could be done. I've, no, I've, seriously I've, though. I've read a lot. A foreign series, Star Trek. You could yeah. do it for the Star Trek original absolutely. series, right? Exactly. Yeah. But I'm sticking. But the you and who thing is like a British thing. Mm. Yes, absolutely. So we wouldn't do Star Trek, possibly in the future. But I would, if we were to do Star Trek, I would, I would a not advertise it to the people who are already doing essays for you and who. I'd advertise it first on Star Trek forums and Star Trek mm. forums only. Oh man, just imagine that editing though. Seriously, I think you should. You you'd have to limit who could write to it. Yeah, right for it. And then the other thing is, I would get did it purely British, or I would get and I would get an American editor to look after the book. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you know, if I if we were to do Star Trek, I'd say right, I'll publish it as one in the series of You and Who, and I would put the watching book's name on it at the end of the process. But the rest of the process, I'd keep an eye on what was going on because I think that's been a problem with Blake's Heaven actually, because a couple of things have come up this week where I, if I'd have known that this was going to happen, I would have stepped in sooner or whatever but you know because it's just the way of the world yeah when you get into this publishing malarkey it's what yes a problem came up that was a problem with the inputting process on the website and it's not something that you could have foreseen from any Mm. of the proofing that we'd done or anything like that so it's been a slightly mad couple of days i have read a few in there already i mean obviously i mean it, it turned up yesterday so I've, I had to read some mm. so I've read about three or four of them well four to be exact including my own I suppose um, you read your own uh, yeah we read my own just to see if it was any you've good you've got to read your own first you've got to, read your, to no, see what it looks like in print yeah, 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 around with you no, to see whether there are many mistakes yeah yeah no it's not that it's, it's purely to straight my ego <laughs> obviously because um, <laughs> my ego's not very big and when you stroke it it grows large now anyway I read Alan P. Jack's um, uh, essay in there about Sudan's hair. It's just genius. It's really <laughs> funny. I just sat there laughing myself stupid. That's one of the great things about these books. There is such a variety because nobody who's doing it knows what anybody else is doing. And because you specify from the start that they have to personalise that essay yeah, to yeah. themselves. So people will come up with all sorts of different ideas and means to make it a personal thing. It's a great read. Some people will write an anecdote about when they first started watching, and then other people, other people will write more of a review with their thoughts on the episode, and then some people will go off at complete tangents. The best ones are the ones that really dig into the nostalgia. A couple of the ones I've edited this week for you and who else. It doesn't care whether you know the program that they're talking about or not you will recognize the way they're talking about the program mm. and those are the best ones the universal ones where it doesn't matter if you've seen yeah the thing they're talking about whether it be an episode of doctor who or a black and white sci-fi series from the 1960s it doesn't matter if you've seen it but as long as the idea and the essay is good and the author evokes what he's talking about mm. to enough of a degree you'll just recognize it and you'll go with it and I tell you, these essays, they pull at the heartstrings as well. 
They do, don't they? I mean, I haven't read these ones that are coming into your new book, but the ones in the past from You and Who. You and Who? There's some real tearjerkers in the You and Who books. And some of the things that people have bared their souls about, it's quite astonishing, really. Mm. And I tell you what, in one of the You and Who books, there's quite a famous name from Doctor Who fandom that everybody will know, bearing his absolute soul about something that I had no idea he was going through. Mm. And it's all there in black and white in the book. It's quite astonishing, really. Yeah. Shall we talk about gridlock? Yeah. Because we've only been going for nearly three quarters of an hour. <laughs> we've got to go in now. <coughs> <coughs> right. was all right? Okay, we'll start, I guess, with the same question we've been starting with on all of these. How long since any of us have seen it? Gridlock, Simon. Since it was transmitted. Really? Mm. A few weeks ago. You watched it a few weeks ago? Yeah. yeah. Just, well, maybe a month. Just under a shot of a month. Because of this voting? Or uh, just no, randomly? No, just randomly. Oh, really? That and midnight. Just randomly, one evening. Okay, then. That's interesting. Because for me, I think I probably watched it during Tenants last year. So it would be about five or six years for me. Mm. But okay, then. A few weeks ago, what did you make of it then? Um, a few weeks ago, what did I make of it then? I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the silliness and the outlandishness of it all. And the first thing that hit me was something that Simon mentioned early on, which 2000 is 2000 AD. AD, right? And I remember thinking about that at the time, but you, know, you don't think too hard about it. But looking at it with our new head oh, over the last two years. extremely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And suddenly I'm going, oh, 2000 AD. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought, wonder why he's gone down that route. I'm glad he has, because I kind of like that world that he's created, even though it's bonkers. And it does feel like it's a patchwork quilt of ideas. But um, well, I remember back, back in when he wrote um, Damaged Goods for Virgin. Yeah. In one of the scenes right at the beginning of that book, there's a chap that sets himself... It's not much of a spoiler because it's right at the beginning, but he sets himself alight in a quadrant. Um, mm. And there's this guy who's got his door propped open with a 2000 AD comic. And straight away when I read that... I thought, this guy, he's a 2008 fan. <laughs> I wonder where this is going to go. Um, and it has got elements of that in the book as well, actually. It's got a kind of urban feel. But it goes back to what we were saying about Ross T. Davis about half an hour ago, doesn't it? Just a miasma of ideas, and he's throwing them at the screen. Literally. And Gridlock is exactly like that. It's The face of Bo in there fits perfectly in that story, because it's just... You know, the face of Bo in there is just like, okay, we've got this adventure with these people in these flying cars in this underground and they're all locked in there and nobody's going anywhere and, oh, upstairs is the guy with a really big head and no body. <laughs> and it's like, how does that fit together? It fits together because it doesn't. You know, gridlock. <clears throat> what I'm always saying on this podcast about a story is a premise with lots of other elements that fit in with that premise in whatever way, but thematically, tonally, all the different elements must fit together. And Gridlock is the perfect example of having an idea that's so mad, you can throw stupid things at it, and they will fit because it it takes place in that sort of 2000 AD-esque universe where yeah. you throw mad things in deliberately when because you... the mad things are what makes the characters come alive. When you create a chaotic universe... As long as you act within that, you know, that, that universe is kind of... As long as the chaos fits. Fits, yeah, it's yeah. going to fit. Yeah, <laughs> it, it kind of relates back to um, the end of the world, doesn't it? <clears throat> same, same, same deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that kind of... Um, yeah, very much so. 
melting pot of uh, different species and different ideas and this these odd phrases and lovely yeah yeah futuristic kind of do you know what because you've brought up end of the world here's a point i was thinking about and it didn't really strike me before this is set in the year five billion and 26 right and end of the world is set in the year five billion right and these people have been going around this circuit for how many years oh yeah one of the couples says 23 I think years. Oh, yeah, 23 years, that's right. Yeah. But And they haven't been the ones who've been going around the longest because they weren't the first ones there. So <laughs> to fit the timeline, that over-city that died, everybody died in a seven-minute viral attack, right? Uh, that's foreshadowing the seven oh, days of Doctor Who. <laughs> but they must already... But they must already have been... It's just one of those mad ideas, right? Rusty Davis doing his... Go on, what? what? No, but what What did the Doctor do in New Earth? He, he helped create a brand new species full of life. Off you go. Oh, brand new world to go and explore. Two years later, we're dead. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's not the point. I, I know, mean, but the bloody, point I'm but making... bloody hell. But yeah. <laughs> well, actually, if Cheers, Russell... Russell. Yeah, but... Okay, this is, this is what I'm coming to in a minute. But before I get to what I'm coming to in a minute, he's not even thought about this, has he? He's just picked the year 5 billion and 26 because he thinks it sounds good. And actually, it makes no sense because actually, the amount of time this thing's been happening is got to be something like 40 or 50 years, right? Mm. If somebody randomly in the middle of all this has been there for 23 years, it has to have been happening for at least 15 years more than that, right? So it must have been happening during the events of the end of the world. Now, the end of the world... No, New Earth, sorry, not end of the world. No, New yeah, Earth. Yeah, yeah. I've been saying end of the world, haven't I? No, New Earth. Now, New Earth does end with an interesting idea about how you fix the problem. Because you've got these dead people with all these diseases and they're spreading all these diseases, right? And they're passing it out like a virus where what you're catching is all the diseases, and to cure all the diseases, okay, it doesn't make scientific sense, but it makes sort of story logic sense. To cure somebody who's got all the diseases, you give them all the cures. What Russell T. Davis could have done if he'd have sat down and thought about how mad his ideas were, like you've just alluded to, Lee, is he could have taken that as his starting point mm. and said, oh, so if you cure somebody of all the diseases with all the cures... What's the next logical thing that happens? And I've said this before, I think, when I was talking about something else, is that if a disease dies out, so does the cure. So if you live in a society where every single disease has died out, then all of the cures have become irrelevant and they die out as well. So if Russell C. Davis sets this in the year 260 instead of 5,026, that's a long enough time to have passed for the problems in gridlock to have arisen as a result mm. of the solution in New Earth. But this does seem to be the case, doesn't it, with, with gridlock, that things are just thrown at it. Randomly at it. I mean, there, there was a moment at the beginning uh, where the drug sellers are selling all their drugs, and you get that woman coming up saying, I want to forget. You know, she's <clears> she's the, what do you call it? What was she? Um, not the MacGuffin, but she's, she's something to... Throw the plot in you, you know, to tell you what's going on. To kickstart. To kickstart. So, yeah, she's an expositionary character. That's it, that's the word. And uh, there she is telling you all about her mother and father have gone on the motorway. Nobody ever comes back from the motorway. That's it, done. Yeah. 
Two seconds later, th- two people come out and kidnap Martha who have come off of the motorway. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, so you know this is you coming to the motorway direction-wise. That was pretty... They just came out of nowhere, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They this just... is Richard Clark, by the way, who yeah. did um, Night Terrors that we watched the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. We did this in a block with, I think... Was it the Shakespeare Code? No, I'm... Well, it might even have been the Lazarus experiment. I can't remember. My memory's going. I'm getting old. But to continue with the idea of throwing in random ideas for the sake of it and not thinking them through, mm. and I'm not sure if I've said this on the podcast, but I've said this before when this episode was first broadcast. The macro. He says, right, you need a monster down at the bottom of all this fog and smog and petrol fumes. What monster can you put down there? Oh, I know what would be interesting. Giant crabs. Oh, hang on. If we have giant crabs, why don't we call them macra? Okay, but in order to explain how the macra are the giant crabs at the bottom of all this fog and smog, and they're feeding on the fumes, we'd have to say that they've de-evolved. Because when they were in the macra terror, which was set more or less in our time, which is basically five billion years before this, mm. They were controlling people to feed off the fog and smog. Well, okay, Russell. Then, in that case, why not build your story around them? And instead of coming up with this bizarre nonsense about a seven-minute virus that killed everybody out, why not just say the Macra have controlled the overworld to get all these people into the underworld to create the fog and smog that the Macra need to survive? It's as simple as that. And you can still have the same ending where you open up the roof and the fog and the smog floods out, floods out, and people <clears throat> they basically created a farm and back they? into a yeah. yeah, yes, creating a farm. And then, um, as soon as the like the angels take Manhattan, but as soon as the fog clears, the smog clears. Once the doors are open, the macro die out because all of a sudden mm. the atmosphere they need to survive is gone. So you you don't even need to show anything mm. you can just those two bits which are all dialogue anyway the doctor telling whoever it is he's with at this point what the macro are mm. and later on the face of Bo telling the doctor about the seven minute virus or novice Hame was the, mm. the 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 actual dialogue instead of doing that the first bit you just say the macro are behind it and at the end you just say right and this is how we stop it it didn't need any more expense spending on the story. It just needed the dialogue tweaking just a little bit. And the whole story would have made a whole lot more sense. <clears throat> yeah, because the whole thing about the drug, you know, the, the drug stuff at the beginning had to be said in order to, you know, um, explain the plot about the bliss. It had to be there in order <clears throat> to explain the seven-minute violence. But actually, the drugs are kind of irrelevant. That was quite an irrelevant yeah. part yeah. of it. And actually found out of place creating those drugs to sell to people to get them onto the motorway <laughs> would have made sense of that too. I just, I just got a crab in a raincoat going, hey, you want to buy some drugs? Click, click, click. Yeah, yeah. But that's what <laughs> they were doing. tubes between the claws. <laughs> but that's what they were doing in the Macro Terror. In the Macro Terror, they were making people happy so that people were happy mm. to provide them with what they needed to survive. Well, maybe that was there in Happy the... Man. No, was it wasn't. No, the Macro is a real late, late edition. Wasn't Very it? late edition, yeah. Mm. So it's just... Just a little bit of thought, and the whole story could have tied up and made sense. But in in a way, you know, as a comic, again, it's as another kind of comic book uh, uh, visually, isn't it? It looks like a comic book, mm. and plot wise, 
you know, the kids really enjoyed this one because of the different types of aliens. And as soon as the cards came out that they could go and buy in the shops, you yeah. know, obviously you had a, a whole plethora and range of different characters. Mm. Um, do, you, do you think that they were kind of created to market or do you think it was just something that Russell T. Davis wanted to do? No, I don't think, you know, you often get this, and this is, if you went on the forums, you'd see there's a lot. People saying, oh, they've just done that so they can make a toy of it or whatever, or mm. a card of it or whatever. Phantom Menace Syndrome. Yeah. But I said this a few weeks ago, didn't I? They don't make the monsters to make toys. They make the monsters because it's Doctor Who, and that's what Doctor Who does. <laughs> and the reason why there are so many different varieties of cat and what have you in this is because it's Russell T. Davis saying, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a cat in uh, bondage gear? And Oh, wouldn't it be great if we started with the... Uh, prim couple from the Edward Hopper painting or whatever. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just Russell T. Davis having mad fun. And the and the people who make the cards, uh, the people who make the toys, they did a Brannigan and they updated the Novice Haim, right? And Face of Bone. So it, the people who made the toys didn't get a huge amount out of this episode. Enough, but not a huge amount. Mm -hmm. I mean, those cards would have existed whether they'd been cats dressed in bondage gear or whether it had just been some guy in a t-shirt you know mm. <laughs> but it's just fun mm. i mean let's face it for all that we've just said about it doesn't really add up and it could have made a lot more sense you know if it had been a bit more thought thrown into it it was still a terrific episode i no? enjoyed it but oh. i think simon had a bit of a few problems with the acting the overacting maybe some of the acting, yeah, yeah. I mean, always bless her. I, I always have a problem with Freema at times. She's she's great at looking emotional and being emotional, <clears throat> but sometimes her deliveries. I think she's good in this. Mm. I think actually, I think Freema Adjuman. I think she's really good at the start when she's wide-eyed and you know still learning about the Doctor's universe, and mm. then at the end, I think she really poorly convinces you that she's turned into the soldier he's made her into. Mm, yeah. And I think her acting goes downhill on exactly the same trajectory as her character goes uphill. And I think maybe when you watch these episodes back now, you project a bit onto her at the start Possibly, yeah. of what you're thinking about her at the end. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, and yeah, I, I do agree with Simon on that, actually. With, with some of the acting in there was not convincing enough from her but when she was in i think when she was away from the doctor she seemed to act better, better. Mm. when she was with those two guys in the, you know and she had to go down to the bottom level with them and all that i felt that she was quite natural with them and that natural kind of like maybe they had a few nights out before acting or whatever and they they got to know each other <coughs> but you could just feel that there was quite a good bit of an acting bond between the three of them and she came off being the stronger actor of the three anyway mm -hmm. uh, and it was really quite good but when she was with the doctor at the beginning and at the end i felt this kind of like gooey eyed having yeah, to yeah. having to act around the doctor this way are you taking me to all the same places you took rose yeah yeah i found it quite abrasive off. really as a and it's, it all comes back to everything we've said about Martha's character anyway. That you know. mm. I, thought, I thought the rebound word was the you know line was quite funny actually, but it just maybe it wasn't delivered. No, no, it was fine. That was yeah, fine. yeah, that's right. I tell you, there was one moment that really stuck out for me when Novice Haim turns up and um, says to the Doctor, "You know, this is what's going on," and she, she says, uh, uh, "I'm taking you." 
up to the over city or something. She says up there to the over city. And it's like, that's the like, oh, there are only 500 people living on this planet. It's one of those exposition lines. Mm. This is down here. That's up there. It's called the Over City, though, isn't it? For a reason. Well, yeah. So, no, but what I mean is, she said, I'm taking you up top to the Over City. Oh, yeah, Rather, yeah. I can't remember exactly how she said it, but yeah. it's so expositionary. It, the line was, I'm taking you to the Over City. It didn't need to be, I'm taking you up to the Over City. And when you watch that scene with her and the doctor when they first meet in, in one of the cars, you've got the guy with the bowler hat behind them, and he's obviously got to keep this kind of surprised face going with his eyes really wide for about a minute he's and a half's worth of brilliant. I loved yeah. him. It's really yeah. funny. Yeah. <laughs> if you get bored out of the scene, just probably watch the best him. thing is, is all the stuff going on in the different cars. That's probably the best thing about this episode. It does go back to the same reasons I like End of the World, is all the different aliens and that. Because it's all about the the world building. It's all about the texture. Oh, the kitten that goes, Mummy. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, what's his face? Ardlo Hanlon. He's very good as the cat. Excellent. And the makeup is astonishing in this, actually. It puts survival to bed, doesn't it, really, when you look at these things. I thought he was great in it. I mean, he's playing pretty much, you know... Playing himself, yeah, Father Dougal, Father Dougal in a cat outfit. (laughs) But it fits perfectly because that's what the part called Mm, for, isn't it? I try really hard to not do this with episodes because I hear a lot of fans sort of taking and say, "Why didn't this work? Why didn't this work?" And usually you'll find that it's all explained. But one thing I didn't understand was why did she have the honesty drug on her neck? Just was it just for fun? No, was it just so that she could? So say, she oh, can no, tell to Martha, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I'm and telling you the know truth because yeah, I really enjoy telling the truth all the time. I really enjoy a bit of honesty mm. every now and again. I don't know about you, but yeah. I like being a bit honest. See, I thought it, uh, <laughs> you'd think there's an undercurrent there where she and her boyfriend have had an issue and she needs yeah. to wear the on. Yeah. But there's no reference to that to make it... See, ordinarily, if, if that had been said or hinted at, that hinted at, just a hint, yeah. What you just said, that I didn't even think about that, because I also was thinking, like Simon, why is she wearing this? What was the yeah. point? Yeah, the point. Because there's a difference between allowing the audience to draw their own conclusions and leaving them floundering. Yeah. Because we've talked often enough about Stephen Moffat gives you the clues, but doesn't. It's doesn't almost, there's, draw the dots for you. There could almost be a joke there, in as much as. There could be something going on when they do kidnap Martha and, and she's got even, the honesty drug. It could be done with a look. She could point to her neck and say, look, I'm wearing honesty. And then you get a cutaway to her boyfriend who's looking daggers at her. Yeah. That's it. It's done. Yeah. But it doesn't happen. No, so... exactly. Shit, we should have written it and filmed it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really well directed by Richard Clark. It could all be down to time, let's face it. Russell D. Davis under so much pressure. There's probably a lot well, of no, things where one, he would join join them up. Well, this one was yeah, done probably. like well, this was early in the early in series three, so they weren't under that kind of pressure at this point. Mm-hmm. The, the first few that go before the cameras generally have a lot less of that kind of pressure than the ones that go by later, because when you start on something, you're still bubbling with your enthusiasm and ideas, and it hasn't you haven't got into the grind of it yet. What you could have had is had both her and her partner. We were both wearing honesty because we both needed to know this was the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the, the other thing is about this episode is it was, apart from the stuff in the slum part, which was filmed in Cardiff somewhere, it was one set. They had one car set. Mm. And I think there was something like seven days 
yeah. in that one set with varying different couples. So it was a bit like Midnight in that it was more theatrical. It was more... The mm. actors had more time to work on their characters and stuff. I did see them make... It, yeah. Because mm. it was much less running around between sets and running yeah. around between locations. That's what I was going to say. We, you know, I saw the making of, you know, mm. Confidential. And it was just a brilliant conceit that you use one tiny set about yeah, the size yeah. of where we're sitting now. And you just redress it and then just paint somebody white and stick him in there. Um, it must have been... The set designers must have had a field day. Must have had great fun doing I'll tell you that. something else I would have done with the white bloke and the red bloke. I would have had the same actor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, would have been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and then add him again in the bowler hat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'd save money. There we go. Why not? They weren't saving money at this point. Speaking of which, what did you think of the special effects? Because actually there were an awful lot of them in this episode. Yeah, not bad. I not didn't bad. think they were that bad. It, like, even the macro, I think the macro were the poorest out of all of it because you could just tell they were CGI. <clears throat> but it didn't matter, did it, really? I think with the all the gas... The was good, wasn't it? I was saying about when he dropped out the bottom of one of the cars and the car wobbled as his... As oh, the that was great, yeah. yeah. Changed, yeah. I, what do you think of the shots of the lines and lines of cars... I don't think it's very convincing. No, no. But it no, does no. the job, and it's maybe I. I didn't even think about it. Maybe just used to seeing that kind of CGI on Doctor Who. You know? mm. yeah. yeah, yeah. What about the music? Because this is. Mm. Hey, I there thought was, there was some great music when they kidnapped Martha. It was all a bit chunky, chunky. Yeah, yeah. That was really actually. I liked the music when she wake. I think it's the bit where she wakes up and you just got boom, boom. Oh yeah. Sort yeah. Of yeah, the music wasn't intrusive, it was just about right, but you, you're thinking about the... You're thinking of the set-piece cross. musics. I'm saying there was one piece in particular, wasn't there, where they, they were talking to the shop? Yeah, oh, that was a bit tradesman. Oh, too yeah. much. Yeah, that's yeah too it was a comedic. bit too... Yeah, it goes quirky. He, he tends to do that early on, doesn't he? But that because doesn't this later is, on. Well, this is episode three, and episode mm. three is the sort of... the fun romp as... The lively, upbeat. Mm. So, uh, most of the music worked really well. I thought the hymn works really well. Mm. Except they cut to a shot of Martha crying far too soon. It's like, no, she's not had a chance to start crying yet. Show the shot of her crying later, but don't show mm. her crying this early in the piece of music. But all the music itself and the idea of having it worked really well. Mm. It did. I mean, in a way, it's odd that you would have that hymn lasting five billion years. Yeah. In a set in the with the same lyrics, you know, or whatever same words. So with it slightly changed, might be quite good. But uh, no, I, I there's but there's reason why they do things like that, and that is to do with well, it's to do in a way, it's to do with the literary agent hypothesis. But in a nutshell, what it is is saying this is a television program with an audience of eight million people who live in. 2008 or 2007 actually this one was and so when you put in references like that rather than trying to create something that you think they'll accept as what might be happening five billion years into the future you give them what you know and there's an understanding between the program makers and the audience that actually what they know is representing what it would really have been. And it works a million times better than Akatan's song, doesn't it? Really? Which is a Rings shame. Rings of Akatan, yeah. Yeah. Because that was created for the programme, obviously. Mm. <clears throat> uh, with a feeling of it being like 
a kind of a, a hymn of some a kind. hymn of some kind with a with a drum. Now, if the old rugged cross suddenly had a drum kick kicking in, it would have been I'd, awful. Have t- I'd have turned off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what spawns that song in Rings of Acton. It does. Actually. You don't that... need a drum kit and no. a backing band. Just and it's not that it's drums because I think you could have done it with percussion. If you'd have had like kettle drums or something in an something, orchestral style, yeah, that would have worked. But yeah, it's the to, fact that it's this huge society. hymn with a rock drum beat underneath it. Yeah, yeah, which it doesn't work at all. Yeah. Sorry, Mary, didn't like that one. No, right. I, we should talk about the Doctor because I mentioned as we were watching it that this is at the start of David Tennant doing his shh thing with the S's, and he does and. That he early does it, speech does it all the time. Yeah, he? talking through his teeth, yes. with his tongue at the top of his, uh, at the roof of his mouth. It's <laughs> it's David Tennant's version of Peter Davison's panting acting. And actually, when the two of them come together in Time Crash, neither of them does it. So ironic, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> well, I th- but I... it's this. This was the start of me wanting to slap David Tennant. I have to be honest. Looking back on it, at the time I didn't even notice. I just was seeing a development of a really great doctor, and I, I do love David Tennant. Looking back on it now, he's acting his socks off, but there there's no kind of reaction back at the same level from the other actors in the scenes. So it's like you said, Simon, mm. that it felt uneven, like in the drug the drug scene again back out in the streets. Mm. The, those actors weren't good enough or strong enough to react properly or deliver the lines strong enough while he was banging on about you're going to be closing up when I get back you know everything's going to be sorted and I will get Martha back and you know he's really going for it and everybody else is like yeah whatever mate <laughs> so yeah, actually yeah. he would have been as I said at the time he, he should have been better off delivering that line very matter of factly well next time you see me you'll be going out of business or something like that yeah and that or, been, yeah, or yeah. if you're going to do the talking through his teeth and getting really angry at them, you really do need somebody at the end of it saying, yeah, whatever, mate. Because yeah. otherwise it's really po-faced. Yeah. And it's the Doctor being a jerk. It seemed really polar when Martha got taken anyway. That, you know, this really extreme shouting after her, screaming after her, you know. It's, she's not been taken away by a monster or anything like that. She's not, you know, he's just got to find where she is. She's not... Yeah, but... I, I, when he shouts Martha at the top of his voice, yeah. I don't mind that. That's fine. That's that's his reaction. He's kind of like in yeah, his yeah, head. Yeah. You can imagine thinking the million and one things. What am I going to do? What am I going to do, Martha? You know, mm. is she in there? Is she going to call back? Whatever you know. So yeah, that that's okay. And when he his method of trying to find her, um, you know, jumping between carriage to carriage, it's just like brilliant. That's a brilliant idea, and that's a he- heroic thing to do. Mm. Kids love that. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And that's Rossity Davis doing his up and down as opposed to side to side. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this about two years ago. But yeah. His reaction when he's shouting and everything like that, though, is that's before he knows anything about the macro. Yeah, he doesn't know she's under threat. All he knows is she's been taken off in a car somewhere. But this is the thing in acting terms. Yeah, but he doesn't know actually at that point she's been taken off to a car. He just knows she's been taken by two oh, people. Okay. She right. kidnapped, didn't she? Yeah, so at that point he doesn't know anything. He's quite, you know, he's frightened because he doesn't know what's happening. But there is this thing that... Um, you know, when you do acting in theatre or on TV, one of the things that you kind of learn about is is the level. So you can go from a two to a five or, or two to an eight, but you don't normally go from like a one to a ten. Or if you start a scene at an eight or a nine, where the hell are you going to go? You can only go 
down mm. and that kind of saps the scenes kind of energy all these sort of things and the thing with Tennant is that he, he kind of starts on a tent mm. <laughs> shouting his guts out and then you're like okay now he's got to shout his guts out for the rest of the episode mm. but then but, when he, do, yeah. he he can pull it down as long as the scene supports him but sometimes it doesn't happen it doesn't work like that I just thought that also we're watching it out of context we in the uh, in the chronology of the series he's recently lost Rose isn't he oh, so yeah. I suppose he's going to be sensitive to looking after his companion I suppose I don't know yeah maybe mm-hmm. there was that nice <coughs> thing about that did, just to carry on on that thought though, that yeah. did drag series three down it went on constant mentions long. of Rose yes yeah. yes yeah. but it needed to be there I suppose because of the well <clears throat> there were two ways you could go with it you either went with the whole the doctor's just lost somebody who's really important to him and we never let him forget it or you could go, right, the Doctor's a thousand years old, more or less, and he's just lost somebody, but he does this. He goes out and he saves people's lives and he saves planets, so he just gets on with it. Mm. So you could just have had him getting on with it. Could have done, but I think yeah. this was the... Or, or get a donor in earlier. <clears throat> this was the, yeah, this was the period, though, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he needed somebody to shock him out of it. Of, the really new, of new Doctor Who. Exploring emotions and explore, you know, we're yeah. exploring all the new things that the doctor would never really do in the past. But what you've got, self, quite self knowing, really. But what you've got here is a really because what you've done is with Rose having gone and the Rose and Tenth Doctor relationship is very smug, the Rose and the Ninth Doctor relationship is very upbeat, mm. even throughout the second half of that series when they're. When the Doctor's been tortured by Daleks and all this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of emotional weight comes in with some of the stories like Father's Day and such. It's still an upbeat relationship. And then the Tenth Doctor and Rose becomes a smug relationship. Then you get to Series 3. And the Doctor Who has been a lively programme. Whether it was the upbeatness or the smugness. It's still a lively programme. And this is a really lively story. And what you've got is a mopey relationship dragging it down and actually it was if he'd have pushed the martha's jealous of the girl that the doctor's lost Mm. if he'd have pushed that any further you could have ended up alienating your viewership because who wants to watch a mopey central character mm. in a series that's a big cartoon-filled fun of... Yeah, you're right, actually, because there's two negative things going on. You've got him moping around because he's lost Rose, and you've got Martha moping, moping around, around because... because she's not getting noticed. Yeah. yeah. There's no positive... And he's also moping around about the time war. So yeah, I was going to say, this is where I was going. He's They're both moping about this, and then all of a sudden it comes up to that scene at the end. And I think that scene just about saves this episode from the mobiness because actually then you bring in something that is valuable enough yeah, to validate yeah. the mobiness. But if that hadn't have happened... And actually that scene's quite nicely judged, but it could have gone so badly wrong. Mm. I was thinking exactly the same thing tonight as I rewatched it again. Yeah. With the I was dreading the... getting to that scene, and actually, when we got there, I was okay with I'm it. I'm glad because um, you know the crane shot that takes it away from the conversation mm. is actually brilliantly. Yes, uh, that's a brilliant idea because you know he's going to carry on talking about you're, you're straining to hear. Because don't forget, of course, at that point we didn't know about the time war, so anything that was coming out was like, what was he saying? Mm. It's dead exciting. So him sitting down and mentioning the time war. Between the Daleks, the last great time war. These were all new words to us. Great time war? What do you mean? What, what, there are more? 
So we were like, you know, really getting quite excited in, in certain areas of our bodies. <laughs> you I don't want to know about that. <laughs> the first time I watched it, you know, two things, you know, the macro was a nice surprise at the end. Yeah. Even if it was kind of... <laughs> I'll tell you something about that in there. a second. Um, but secondly, the face of Bo coming back. I love the face of Bo. Uh, I, love, I love the big old face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, face, Mr. Harry. In the Doctor Who, man, because this, this episode came out the year before I was on the internet and I knew no spoilers. And the Doctor Who magazine that came out said there's going to be a surprise return of a monster from the old series that you that. would never guess. And then there was this article about this story that was set in this world where humans are wearing patches for their emotions and they're in these cars that are being clogged up in all this gas. And I said, oh, it's obviously a macro story then because, you know, the macro are <laughs> manipulating people's emotions to create the gas. And so I got the monster right for completely the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, the connection's there. It is there, but Russell T. Davis didn't bloody make it. <laughs> <laughs> that was very frustrating, actually, yeah. getting the monster right and then having him give this speech about how oh, they've de evolved. Oh, so frustrating that was. <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, this is a piece of genius. It is the Matt Gray? He's thought this through. <laughs> right at the risk of going on to another two-hour podcast shall we just score this mm. oh god oh unless there's anything anybody else particularly wants to bring up but no no i'll say it when i score it okay then score it and tell me do you want to start at the bottom um <laughs> you, yeah lots of lovely elements and lots of stuff that i like from that era but did I enjoy it? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's be a five or a six. Really? Mm. Okay. Oh, Decide. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm, I'm going to go for a five. I'm going to have oh, to go wow. for a five. Because it just didn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, I only saw this a few weeks ago. I've seen it quite a few times in my life, I've got to say. Probably about five or six now. So it it gets... It doesn't... Yeah, it gets worse the more I watch it. Really, like, yeah. Probably because I see more in it, and I'm yeah. I don't think it's a great repeated viewing episode. Actually, maybe three or four times, but after that, you. No. It's actually a lot less funny than I remembered it being. Yes, mm. there's not a lot. Of it wasn't as much fun as I remember it being. Yeah, yeah. It was quite fun a few weeks back. I kind of watched it, but it, you know, I don't know. Yeah, diminishing returns and all that. Mm, okay, well, maybe it's a, an on the day thing. Tonight, re watching it again and a few weeks back, just under a seven, so I'd have to say six. It's not, it's, it's, it's pretty good, but there's too many elements in it, too many little holes, and yeah, you know, they just really get on my nerves. And <laughs> so maybe it's, it's, it's gappy, isn't it? It's gappy, it's gappy, so six. And I'm going to give it. A seven, because I think it is tremendous fun. And I think there is a brio in the ideas. But at the same time, there's... F Even though it it kind of gets away with it because of that 2000 AD thing, there is a frustrating gap in cohesion in it. It's just... It's a bit like a stir-fry on a Sunday morning when you're just throwing things in the pan because you've still got them in the fridge. Oh, bubble and squeak. Yeah, that kind of thing. Mm. It's like a... It's like a bubble and squeak. Stir fry on a Sunday morning. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When you wow. 
What yeah. kind of house do you live in? So your breakfast. No, I don't have a stir fry on a Sunday morning. I'm saying it's like when you get up on a Sunday morning and you're peckish and you're slightly yeah. hungover and you just throw a lot of things in the frying just pan. Just open up the fridge. You go. I'll put that cheese in there. That red pepper. I'll have those mushrooms. That blancmange can all go in the stir fry. Let's just do it. Is that what I mean? You know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. Sprout some Boxing Day morning. Oh. Yeah, but if you stir fry them, num nums. If you overcook them, they all go wrong. But this episode feels like a lot of reheated ideas thrown together for the sake of just being entertaining. Yeah. Too much tofu. It's a big box of candy floss. And hey, Lee, think back to an hour and a half ago when we were watching Gridlock and tell me there wasn't any cheese in there. Hey! (laughs) Right, shall we do the last email from the man himself? Oh! Here we go. Uh, certificate 18. I didn't really read this one too much before, so... Is that a book you've just got out there? <laughs> Dear Blue Boxers, I listened to your last podcast earlier. It was quite good. When it started, I thought I had downloaded the wrong thing, as it was like a partly mental broadcast, and you went on and on about the <laughs> erection. You were saying that you didn't know who would be in bed with who, but having seen the people who we're all vo- we were all voting for, I don't think any of them would want to be in bed with any of the others. I wouldn't. Well, maybe Annie Widley Coombe. No, Annie Widley Coombe had a push, but I'd have to be a bit desperate. <laughs> Did you say disparate? Desperate. <laughs> Either or. <laughs> After this, I thought we would get on to Doctor Who, but then JR went all American and kept saying Z while Simon and Lee were trying to make him talk properly. It didn't work. Maybe JR can get some tablets from the Doctor. I have had several lots of tablets from my Doctor, and I think they help sometimes. I don't take them when I listen to your podcast, just to be on the safe side. (laughs) Well, thanks. JR had been watching a holy film, which didn't make him happy because of its message, which he said was like being smacked in the face with it to get it across. I have tracking... <laughs> no, not having that sentence. <laughs> but I was thrown into a cell and told not to do it again or they might cut it off. Ben Lee talked about when he went logging in Canada. No, nope, not having that paragraph. <laughs> I have been logging many times. It is fun, although I never get to join in, which makes me sad. I don't know why Lee had to go all the way to Canada to do it. Maybe because he knows too many people in the local logging area. (laughs) After a couple of weeks, you finally got around to talking about Doctor Who, so that we didn't have to. Although, because it had been so long... (laughs) Although, because it had been so long, I think quite a lot of us had probably talked about it ourselves by this bit... (laughs) Probably he's probably going to get the same reaction to this episode, isn't he, to be fair? I think that's probably the best thing he's ever written. <laughs> you talked about the David Tennant story, Tofo and Clams, <laughs> which was set in a posh restaurant run by monkeys. Tofu. The monkeys were all red and bounced oh. around a lot, and there was a weary waffle. I didn't see any nuns, though. I like nuns. I knew one once, and she let me touch her wimple. Although the priests all tried to touch mine, so I left and went to the cinema instead to see Piranha 3 Double D. You explained. to get some social commentary into this, haven't you? You explained that the dictator of the episode was called Harry Lynn. 
I didn't know that she had done this, which surprised me as I know her. She is always standing on a street corner talking to men. She has a beard, so not many men go with her, though. I did once, but it was a bit scary and I got a very bad rash. <laughs> this... <laughs> This was the story which introduced Touchwood, which starred John Barrowboy <laughs> and, and Yvette Fielding, as well as as well as burnt gonads and knockers Morley. That was like a grown-up version of Doctor Who with sweary bits and sexy bits, so I liked it. Especially Yvette and Knockers, who were both very pretty, and my hand got tired again. You briefly spoke about a thing called Barnacle Baby, which sounded okay. I had barnacles once, but I got some cream and they went away. Ooh. Just before you read out my letter, which everybody liked, you talked about friends. I liked friends, especially Jenny Ferry Aniston and on, and who was very lovely. I watch films with her in and she normally shows her nipples at some point, which makes me happy. My... Favourite film with her is called Horror Bubble Bosses, which is where she is a dental lady. I wish she was my dental lady, as I would go every week, but I have a sweaty man instead, so I try and avoid it and listen to your podcasts instead. Your friend, Sharak Jizz. P.S. If you want to let your listeners know my email address so they can talk to me, I don't mind. I would like someone else to talk to, as I get very lonely sometimes. Although I usually put on Planet of Fire and that cheers me up and my hand gets tired again. <laughs> God. <coughs> Thanks oh, for that, Sherrod Jins. Didn't know Larry Grayson used to go on about Harry Lynn. Very possibly. Yeah. Listen, have we got any female listeners out there? <laughs> Be oh, quite dear. Handsome, been driven away. Yeah. yeah, not anymore. We may have had once, but those days are long in the uh, past. I think we've still got Jenny. Yeah. I think Jenny listens. Yeah. Hello, Jenny. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I think we'd better... Okay, next week. Next week, Lee's not going to be here because no. he's off doing something else. So next week, we're going to. Oh, this was the last of our six that was supposed to be three episodes talking about the. So, but we may come back to this at some point mm. in the future. But that's the end of that for now. Next week, Simon and I are going to be talking about Simon's favourite subject. Mm. But we may not be talking about his favourite examples of that subject. No. <laughs> and if you hadn't guessed by now, that's music. Mm. And then the week after that, we shall convene to watch something from the classic series. Right. Which is almost certainly going to be Canine and Company. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we so can but... talk about that music as well. Ba -ba -ba -ba. <laughs> Until then, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.